Welcome to Cryptic, the Carlton Research Practice of Teaching Collaborative. My name is Federica Goffi and I am the co-chair of the PhD program in architecture at the Azraeli School of Architecture and Urbanism, Carlton University. Today we conduct an interview about the PhD by Creative Practice at Newcastle University with Dr. Adam Shar, Director of the School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape at Newcastle University in the UK. In addition to myself, our interviewers today are a group of PhD students here at Carton University, Nicolas Arellano Rizopatron, Christine Washko and Marco Yanni, and two post-professional master students, Amanda Lapointe and Devon Moore. And we also have a guest with us, adjunct professor Tash Mazud, who is also a member of our school. Well, I'd like to start by just thanking you for the opportunity for the interview and I guess learning about the history of the PhD program at Newcastle Universities. And um, I guess uh, Nicholas has the first question for you. Yeah. Welcome to this interview. And the first question is uh, related to the series of books that I haven't had the pleasure to read yet, but I, I want to at one point is the thinker uh, Thinkers for Architects, where you participated. And my question is, uh, which thinker has to have been more influential for your architectural research? First of all, thank you very much for the invitation. It's fantastic to be here and to visit your school and to meet you guys and to engage with the colloquium tomorrow as well. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I noticed you called that question an icebreaker, and I guess you thought it was going to be an easy one. But <laughs> um, so the answer you're probably expecting is Martin Heidegger, I guess, given that I, I, I wrote Heidegger for Architects and the book on Heidegger's we heart as well. Assume, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a bit more difficult than that. Um, so, I mean, I, since I worked on Heidegger in the 90s and 2000s, there's quite a lot more of his work that's been published, some of the more obscure texts. Um, and in that, in that, in some of the things that have been published, the black notebooks and other things, there are more and more kind of reprehensible connections between Heidegger's philosophy and the Nazi regime in Germany that are coming out. And so, I, I, yeah, I don't. I've, I've temporarily stopped writing on Heidegger because I'm not sure I feel able to until I've worked some more of that stuff through. I might never do it again. I don't know. Um, so. I mean, there are, you know, I, I guess as an architect, there are bits of Heideggerian thinking that have made their way into, into my work. So the value of a, a deep tactile sensibility for materials and places and atmospheres and the kind of attunement to the commonplace closely watched. And also a kind of critique of technology, which is questioning of uh, the ways that technology in frame us. Um, but after that, though, there are some aspects of Heidegger that I'm very critical of. Um, I mean, I think often the critique of technology becomes a lazy dismissal of technology, and I think that's a problem. Um, I think there's a, the idea of place that's perhaps latent in some of Heidegger's work is, can all too easily become exclusionary and can, you know, can, lead where, you know, can lead ultimately towards persecution. I think there's a risk there. There's also a view in Heidegger's work of dwelling on dwelling in place, where gender and class roles, uh, are, you know, are very traditional and about kind of keeping. It could be read as a way of kind of keeping people in their place, you know, which I think is very problematic. And the other aspect of Heidegger's work I find really problematic is about authenticity. Um, 
this sort of claim that there are authentic ways of living and behaving and inauthentic ways of living and behaving and actually I think what that does most of the time is to produce snobberies you know in, in architectural culture often libraries and theatres good shopping malls are bad brick and stone are good um, composite and artificial materials are bad hand drafting is good digital drafting is bad all of these things and I, I increasingly want to try and reject authenticity claims and to try and treat all architectures and all architects of, of equal interest, whether or not we might, first of all, like them from the point of view of our architectural training. I don't think that necessarily matters. I think what matters is that architectures illustrate the values that are involved in their inhabitation, construction, procurement and design, and of the cultures and individuals that have produced them. Um, and that if we start to dismiss certain kinds of architectures, we're missing out the opportunity to engage with ways of thinking. Um, so, you know, also would would reject from Heidegger the, the, the dimension of authenticity or an insistence on authenticity. Anyway, that's kind of drifting away from your question. So, uh, which influences thinkers have influenced me? I mean, Heidegger definitely has, um, but I'd add to the list Foucault. Um, and his penetrating analysis of how power operates um, and in service of whom. I think Bourdieu on taste is incredibly important for architects, um, paying attention to how taste and connoisseurship are constructed as mechanisms of power. Um, but also, you, know, you could argue that as architects, in contemporary practice, one of the things that we do is to sell good taste. Um, and actually, the, you know, the un I think the understanding the understanding of taste that Bourdieu gives us is really useful. I've also got a lot from British cultural studies, so Angela McRobbie on gender and sexuality and fashion and culture, Stuart Hall on production and consumption and race and ethnicity, Raymond Williams on ideas of the country and the city and the ways that those have kind of become competing poles in intellectual history. I'll stop now. That's too many, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, so that was, yeah, it wasn't really the, the easy question to answer, but uh, yeah, no, it's a good one. Thank you. Thank you so much, Angela. It's really useful. <laughs> I guess to, to get started about the, the history of the PhD program at Newcastle Universities in architecture, planning and landscape as mm -hmm. well, um, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the program? how it was initiated, and what is your role in the programme currently? Okay, so I guess the British context is different to the North American context. So there isn't such a thing in the UK as PhD programmes as such. There's, um, PhDs don't or haven't historically involved formal teaching, apart from some basic research methods material. Doctoral research is always focused from the beginning on, on, the, on a particular thesis topic. Um, so students arrive and work, work with, in our case, two supervisors on a project from the beginning. Um, so there's no programme leader as such of a PhD programme, mm. um, but you know, I'm one of a number of supervisors in the school. Um, uh, so it feels as though, um, you know, I guess it's a sort of different kind of context from, from what you're used to. Um, but the, I, our school is nearly 100 years old. It's 100 years old next year. So it's one of the oldest schools in the UK, one of the most longest established graduates, including Alison and Peter Smithson and Terry Farrell and others. 
Um, but it tends, I don't think Newcastle's that well known outside the UK that we're working on that. Um, uh, so uh, I, nobody knows when the first PhD was completed in architecture in the UK. I think I think it was Leslie Martin in 1931, but there may have been an earlier PhD than that. Uh, in our school, we also don't know when the first doctoral candidate was enrolled, but we think it was in the 1950s. Um, and I guess what's distinctive about our school is that we've relatively recently, so in the last 10 years, set up a PhD by creative practice, um, which is rooted in research by design and in practice-based and practice-led research. And that coexists alongside more traditional written forms of PhD. Uh, we've now had about 15 graduates from the PhD by creative practice. Um, we sometimes call it a PhD by creative practice program, although it's not really a program in the way that you would understand it in that it's still students working with supervisors on a particular project. Um, and one of the things that we're keen to do with that is to investigate how architectural ways of working and architectural ways of knowing can be employed to investigate the world. Um, and you know how it seems to me that as as architects we have distinctive things to offer to the to the to the intellectual commonwealth to to, to academe, um, as well as using research to advance our own professional knowledge and professional insights. And you know, so I think there's there's a kind of broader point about how architectural methods can make wider contributions to society and culture and scholarship. And uh, I guess that's one of the reasons for setting up. PhD by creative practice. Um, the, the terminology we inherited, so there were already PhDs by creative practice in, in the institution in music, so in composition and in, in um, creative writing. So we, we stole their regulations which came with the term by creative practice rather than by design. And one of the things that it's done, that terminology, is to open up something that's slightly different to PhD to PhD by design and research by design in that I think it's allowed us to think about what creative practice is more broadly than traditional design methods in architecture. You know, I, I think when we set it up we thought that students would, would, would do a design project um, as part of the PhD, much like the, the PhD by creative practice in music would produce a piece of composition and then the writing is a, is a kind of framing and situation of that, that piece of work. We, I, I think we thought that that students would produce a piece of design which would then be framed by a document. But it's become something much more interesting and complicated and interdisciplinary than that. Um, so we're doing a book on creative practice inquiry and architecture, which hopefully we're just about to submit the book proposal next week, which comes out of those 15 projects plus some of the staff projects. Um, so I guess that's the, that's the, the although it's a long established programme, the, the creative practice um, Research is relatively new for us. I think uh, sorry, yeah. can you give an example of one such project? Yes, I mean one of the other things is that they're all very different. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think that also comes about because it's about a student working with supervisors on something that interests them. So um, there's one. Uh, which one? Which one shall I pick? Um, well, I'll give you a couple of examples. So one, uh, Sam Clark was sponsored by a retirement housing developer who I think wanted him to tell them how to redesign retirement housing. 
Um, but actually, the PhD was a became kind of what what we call a sort of creative ethnography. So it, the PhD was a story, or, or was the story of nine actors involved in the, the in the development of, um, of of third age housing. So it includes um, to you know an, an older elderly an older elderly person. Um, recent retirees, then uh, a lodge manager for the developments, um, a developer, a planner, an architect, an architecture student because he ran a project with students at that point, and it, the, the nine stories finished with his own story as the researcher. Um, and each of the, the stories um, is based around a character, but each one builds up the literature around retirement housing, and each one includes different aspects of design, some of which are were interventions in um, in developments, others of which were about a close observation of how people inhabit space, um, or yeah. whatever. I mean, another one that's quite interesting is Ray, Ray Vell's work on the RIBA Oxford Conference in 1958, which you've probably not heard, you know, I don't know if you've heard of, but that conference was what defined architectural education in the UK. So the, 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 the structure of under, you know, well, first of all, moving architectural education into universities, and then the structure of undergraduate degree, postgraduate degree, and what we call RIBA part three, which is the professional qualification. Um, so, and lots, there are lots of things about architectural culture in the UK that come from that conference, and yet nobody's ever written a history of it. And the reason they haven't written a history of it is that very little exists. So all we really know about it was Leslie Martin, who was the chair and secretary, wrote it up. But he wrote, he wrote it up in a way which meant that the account of it led to where he wanted it to lead. Um, and other than that, there are no minutes. There are a handful of documents around the organisation of it. So nobody's written about it. And Ray has dug into all the evidence that exists um, and is now doing what, what he calls fictocritical perhapsing, which is then um, use, trying to work beyond the edges of that evidence to write the story of the conference and to ultimately to write a set of minutes, um, which will be fiction, but based on his deep knowledge of the evidence. And also he's, he's, he's mapped and dug into the biographies of the 52 people who were there, 51 men, one woman, um, and has dug up, you know, some of them are fam were famous architects and there's lots and lots of information about, some of them are very obscure civil servants um, and others, and he's really dug deeply into the biographies. He's, he knows what the weather was on the three days of the conference, he's been to the room where it happened, um, so he's constructing a history of that event, but it's it's a history that moves beyond the edge of the evidence into into creative practice. So then, yeah, they've become quite in some of them in some instances quite a long way from conventional architectural design, but still creative research. Thank you. So uh, we wanted to ask you if you could situate the program in the context of the UK and perhaps the world, you know, in terms of. PhD by creative practice. I mean, in, yeah, I, I've given your recent book. Yeah. I mean, it feels like you ought to be doing that, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Somebody has probably a much better overview of global PhD programs in architecture than I do. I mean, I think so. In the UK, doctoral research in architecture in, emerged 
in the post-war era, actually out of the Oxford Conference. So one of the things that the RIBO Oxford Conference recommended was the establishment of doctoral work in university schools in the UK. And at that time, I think partly inspired by post-war reconstruction, um, much of the research in architecture was about technical knowledge, was about construction, environmental performance, about land use, and so on. And when universities began setting up schools of architecture, what tended to happen was that the um, architects borrowed methods that were already familiar to academics who thought they already knew what research looked like. So um, tended to be methods from applied science and engineering, methods from the humanities, from sociology. Um, and uh, you know, so you have architects working using established research methods. I guess in this millennium, architectural researchers in the UK, but also elsewhere around the world, are now trying to work to secure methods that are distinct to the field, um, that, that aren't just reusing established methods, but are, are trading in architectural ways of knowing. Um, and so design research in particular is taking off in, in uh, Australia, in Europe, I guess now in the US a little bit. I'm not so sure about what's going on in Canada. You can tell me about that. Um, but I guess one of the things that we've been trying to do distinctively in, in, in Newcastle is around this idea of creative practice research as being similar to but also distinct from design research. Um, that design research, I think, often rightly is interested in architectural methods but tends to be focused on, on that alone. And I think some of the creative practice projects that we've talked about, you know, or the, the couple, the couple of projects that I just talked about, are then almost kind of taking design methods back into the intellectual commonwealth and re-engaging with other methods like history, historical methods, and historiography, like ethnography and anthropology, um, in order to see what happens if you then infect those things with with architectural ways of working. Um, so I think. What we're doing there is a bit distinctive, <laughs> I hope. Um, and the work includes uh, projects I've talked about already, but things like digital creative practices. We've got colleagues working on biotechnology, so uh, biotechnical creative practices, um, creative history and ethnography that I've mentioned, um, working on uh, co-production, co-production of space, um, choreographic practices, so mapping practices, and so on. So you know, there's a whole kind of spectrum of stuff going on at the moment. And I, you know, I think we've been really lucky to get such a diverse range of students and you know, also supervisors with some really diverse interests. So it kind of feels like we're doing a bit of an, an experiment in creative practice research between us, yeah. students and supervisors, to, to sort of see what this, this thing is. This is more of a sort of general broad question. Uh, what do you believe to be the role of doctoral research in architecture? Another sort of question. <laughs> Another small, small yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose that the short answer is about the production of new knowledge in our field, but also the contribution that knowledge from our field can make to the wider intellectual commonwealth. Um, in the UK, we have um, 
the government likes uh, applying metrics to universities and we have something called it's began as the research assessment exercise it's now the research excellence framework because we're all excellent all the time um, and uh, one of the things that the, the research excellence exercise the ref has carries with it is a is a effectively a sort of standard definition of what research is that cuts across all disciplines so research is considered to be work that is original significant and rigorous um, and actually though, those tests I mean for all it's it's a bit reductive those tests of originality significance and rigor are quite useful um, and one of the things I think that's a, that, that kind of institutional framework has allowed is, is to kind of encourage design research, creative practice research, other kinds of non-traditional research, because there's an accepted way of defining what research is. Mm -hmm. So if it's original, significant and rigorous, it's research. And I think that's made allowed us to make the claim for buildings, designs, exhibitions as being research in a way that's perhaps easier if you don't have that sort of broader institutional framing of what research is. Um, so, yes, I hope that answers the question in some way. Uh, so, this is uh, a question that sort of came up when I was reading your work, Drawing Your Fate. Um, is doctoral research in architecture removed from the everyday and ordinary people? And if so, should we be bridging that gap? Thank you. Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I mean, it was kind of you to send me the questions in advance, and that was the <laughs> one of the ones I ended up thinking about a lot. Because uh -huh. um, on the one hand, I think you know, research is necessarily specialised. Mm -hmm. It involves specialised languages and vocabularies and the analysis and the interpretation of specifics out of which you can then draw wider interpretations and conclusions. So I think, you know, the, one of the research is necessarily specialised and you, know, you could argue arcane, perhaps it has to be. Um, and doctoral research, I suppose, is an initiation, or one of the things it does is, init is as an initiation in research expertise to train new researchers as well as to produce new knowledge in its own right. So I don't, you know, I don't think we need to apologise for specialism and for expertise, you know, especially at a time when the merits of experts are being questioned. I don't know if you picked up on this nugget of news but during the Brexit referendum campaign in the UK um, senior politician Michael Gove um, criticised experts you know mm -hmm. there were lots of experts who were who were, was, were raising all sorts of problems about Brexit and you know so is it all, you know, effectively it was trying to diminish the value of experts and expertise and I think that, you know at that time given that 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 there is a kind of strand of politics which is involves trying to dismiss expertise when it's and, and, and knowledge when it doesn't fit with the, the narrative I think it's really important to make a claim for specialism and for expertise on the other hand though that said I think we have a duty as researchers to try and make our research as accessible as accessible as possible um, and I think that means not being willfully difficult or obscure in what we write for the mm. sake of it I mean, and I think that can be a trap of academic writing sometimes, where at worst erudition can be a substitute for something to say. Um, but on the other hand, difficult and obscure ideas are necessary. Um, and I think the point probably is something about appropriateness, that difficulty and obscurity have their place where appropriate. 
but equally we should do our best to account for our ideas in ways that are communicative. Um, and I think that's where good judgment as a researcher and as a writer comes into play. And actually a lot of research I think is about judgment and, and the PhD probably is a training in good judgment um, as much as anything else. Um, I mean also I think that's where new and digital media can be really interesting as well in terms of opening up research to other kinds of audiences. Um, I mean, you know, I'm a bit of a new media dinosaur. I'm not even on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and in fact, one of our PhD by creative practice candidates is working on, on digital media. He's, he's got the conceit. This is a guy called Aldrich, Aldrich Rodriguez Abora. And his um, conceit is that, that Violet Le Duc was the first architectural influencer, um, <laughs> that he, he set out to, um, at the end of his life, to write a, a series of stories for for um, people interested in architecture. Um, and so he's sort of using that as a basis to investigate um, uh, the ways in which you can kind of communicate research through Instagram and Twitter and uh, YouTube and so on. And sort of all sorts of kinds of interesting stuff's come out of it around the way the algorithms work and how you build likes and how you build audiences and so on and, and the kind of length of material that you could, you know, people weren't watching five minute videos so he reduced them to three and then two minute videos and the number of number of people engaging with them got much greater. Anyway, that's a bit of an aside, but you know, I think in terms of um, the communication of research, I think there's a lot of unexplored potential in, mm. in other kinds of media that when, that as researchers I think often kind of stuck sometimes with texts and drawings that we're not perhaps engaging with and thinking about creatively as much as we could be. Um, I think you've answered the next question <laughs> a lot, so I don't know if I need to add more. Unless there's anything you want to add to that. Um, so that's the question about you know, what mechanisms and methods. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I probably have answered that. I mean, you, the the second part of the question was, are you know, are those are the methods within or outside the discipline? And I suppose the bit of that I thought was interesting was about the question of outside and inside the discipline and whether that, how easy that is, <laughs> to get to. And actually, I think sometimes as architects we can be a bit fixated on on this on the discipline and our methods. You know, I think we. We want to protect them and celebrate them and share them with people, but equally, I think it's in, sometimes worrying about what's inside and what's outside isn't that helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and that you know that, that architectural ways of working can contribute to all sorts of questions. So I get, yeah, I guess that bit of the question yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was interested to come back to. Yeah. So. Uh, so do you choose to work with students based upon common research interests or I suppose research methods as well? Mm -hmm. And um, to what to what extent do you have a role in their development of those research interests or research methods? So I suppose that's one of the things that's maybe a little bit more, a little bit different in the British model where students come um, with a project or, or work, on, work on a project without much formal teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes students come to find us as supervisors uh, because of our interests and because there's something they really want to work on. Um, sometimes people come with a topic, you know, here's, here's an idea that I want to work on and we try and help them find supervisors that fit. 
Um, I mean, I suppose one of the things that's interesting about about working on, on as a supervisor um, and indeed as a, I guess as a student on a PhD project without that kind of formal training and research methods is that you then have to sort of spin the understanding of the field and, and helping students to situate themselves in the field out of the project. So, you know, one of the things that we have to do as supervisors is to kind of help find, help students with, with references that aren't only relevant to that project, but are also relevant to kind of building the web of ideas that you can then locate the project and yourself within. Um, and it means that you kind of have to do that individually each time with, in, with individual students in different ways. And actually, it's one of the things I enjoy most about supervision, actually. Um, and it's also one of the, you know, I mean, I, I find I learn way more from my, from my PhD students than they ever learn from me. And I guess it's one of the things that they sort of bring to that is, is kind of, t you know, testing me on how to, how to kind of work with them on their work and, and to locate it more broadly. Um, I think I think your answer actually lends itself to this question, but uh, I'll ask it anyways. Uh, what is the role of the PhD advisor, sort of like at the beginning, perhaps, and over time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think it I think it shifts. I mean, it's a I think it's a relationship of equals. Um, I mean, and one of the, ni the nice things about it is that often the supervisor begins as the expert and the student finishes as the expert. Mm -hmm. So that you know, by the time somebody's finished a PhD, no one else in the world will know more about their topic than they will. They, you know, will absolutely be the expert. So I think the supervisor has a role in initiating a project, or helping to initiate a project, trying to help find what's original in a topic, um, and try and help the student to locate the, the their project in the in the field, um, and in the. You know, I guess in the, in the panoply of academic methods and um, disciplines, and also there's a role in guiding the student on writing. But the student is always going to be in charge of their field work, the methods, their interpretations of, of the work. And I think one of the nice things about it is is that if it works, both parties are really open to where the ideas might lead. You know, Paul Clay talks about taking a line for a walk, and I like the idea of taking an idea for a walk. You know, that's what a PhD is or could be. Um, I mean, I suppose I also think supervisors are there to be kind and supportive and to be a critical friend. You know, the academic world can be quite brutal sometimes, um, and I think it's important to give praise when it's due. I don't think that when I was doing my PhD I ever had any praise. Well, I don't remember any. Maybe that says more about me than it does about my supervisor. Um, but I do, I do think that's, I do think that's important, um, and that the key part of what a supervisor should do is to help students gain academic self-confidence and to flourish in this sort of strange and, and alien world of research. Um, I guess I mean talked about Bourdieu earlier, but I don't know if you've come across his book Homo Academicus, which is about um, the the, it's a, the the culture of academe. I mean, specifically, it comes out of um, a French academic milieu in the 1970s, and is a, is a real sort of takedown of, of how um, expertise is constructed as a kind of power game. Mm. Um, but I, I actually, I think 
one of the things that we can do as supervisors is, a, is, a, is to help a bit demystify the cultural capital of research and the way that cultural capital operates with, with PhD students. And I think perhaps the discipline is healthier the more we do of that. So we wanted to ask you if, you, if, I guess, considering the short history of PhD programs in architecture, you could reflect on, I guess, the broad diversity and the spectrum of research attitudes, you know, going from, I guess, PhD in history, history in theory, uh, I guess, by design or by practice. And you've talked a lot, of course, about the creative practice. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, I think, um, I suppose I, I, there's, I mean, there's often a tendency to try and want to categorise research into, into into history and theory or social science or by design or whatever. And I think one of the things I've learned from working on the PhDs by creative practice over the last 10 years is that it gets really interesting when you start to undermine those categories and to work across them. Um, and I guess in the UK where we don't have PhDs in, dot, 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 you know, it's a student working with one or two supervisors on a project, it's much easier to subvert those categories a bit. Um, and, you know, I mean, clearly those categories are useful. There are families of method methodological practice, which it's important to recognise and to know. Um, but, you know, I mean, I guess those of us who come to research from an architectural background, from design studio, know that come from a training that's always teaching us to think across categories and to ignore and subvert them um, and I think what's interesting you know I think often it's interesting in research I mean yes we need to understand and subscribe to and work with established methodologies but also to think about how they can cross-pollinate and, in, and, and intervene with one another and, and to kind of think about some of those things about learning what it means. knowledge that's contained in the texts of the discipline I suppose I'm more interested in the knowledge the, the, the disciplinary knowledge and the knowledge and values more broadly that are contained in buildings and how we can read those closely and what we can learn from them um, but I guess architectural knowledge is also formed in our in the values and habits that we've become acculturated in as, as design students um, and so I guess that that's feels to me that's where architectural knowledge is constituted. Um, I mean, on, on the, the practice question, I suppose one, an, another aspect of what we've been doing in Newcastle, so we've got the PhD by creative practice. Um, at the same time as we set that up, we also set up something called design office, um, which is a, 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 what we call a design research consultancy or practice based in the school. Um, and what we do with that is that we use fee income from projects to pay PhD studentships so to pay scholarships for students. Students then spend some time working on projects in the office. Um, 
but also use those projects towards their PhDs by creative practice. Um, so it's a way of trying to integrate research and, and practice more, uh, more deeply through PhDs. And one of the interesting things that's come out of that is that I, when I, I suppose when we set it up, I imagined that what would happen is that the projects, design projects, would appear, appear in fairly conventional ways in the PhDs. In fact, what's happened is something quite different. So, for example, um, one of the design office PhD candidates, Yasser Megahead, um, produced a graphic novel that was a, um, a dramatisation of some of the value conflicts of our site meetings. Um, so you know, he got really interested in the way that architectural values seem to be sort of sideways on to the ways that project managers and um, uh, quantity surveyors and so on think. And so he dramatised our site meetings as these sort of high stakes public debates and produced that as a graphic novel. So that was the, the kind of centrepiece of his PhD. Um, another project, Kieran Connolly, um, his, his uh, so one of the projects that we did through the office was a refurbishment of a building on campus um, called the Armstrong Building, where it's, I suppose a late 19th century um, uh, Victorian Gothic building, the first building on our campus, and it had a, all sorts of kind of piecemeal alterations over the years, including fitting a lot of suspended ceilings that cut across arched window heads and so on. Um, and he got really interested in suspended ceilings and the PhD has become an intellectual and cultural history of the suspended ceiling. Um, <laughs> and in fact he did a piece in the, yeah. the Ceilings and Dreams book at the, um, at the Frascari Symposium. And that's become, he's sort of turned into an argument about um, defaults in architecture. So the way that the suspended ceiling becomes a kind of default. Um, and in fact there are, you know, there are the software where you put in the dimensions of a room and the software produces the sort of de default design. And you got interested in the way particularly estates managers um, tend to have a set of default, a, a default specification, so you know, a standard suspended ceiling, a standard carpet tile and so on, and how those things kind of take on their own design agency. Um, so in terms of the relationship between practice and research, we do specifically have design office, which is another way of trying to integrate architectural, you know, or, or try, try to explore what happens when you when you do architectural research in a way that's open to practice. And you know, I really enjoyed the fact that it became way more interesting than what I originally imagined it was going to be. Uh, so, is there practice in architectural theory and theory in architectural practice? <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, I suppose all designs are theoretical, whether the authors like it or not, or whether they're aware of it or not. You know, all buildings have, as I said before, and I tried to make point in reading architectural culture, all buildings have something to say about the values of the individuals and the cultures that made them. So in that sense, I think all practice is theoretical. Um, and, you know, you can read buildings for those values. What they then say about culture and society is another thing, often. Um, but, um, but also, I, I mean, I think as well, much theory is concerned with practice in the end, you know, with the question of how we do architecture better um, or how we can make, help to make living in the world better, whatever better means. You know, and I, I suppose philosophy 
often deals with questions that maybe don't immediately have much to do with practice. But then again, I think most philosophers in some way or another implicitly or explicitly want to make a better world in whatever terms. And you know, I think philosophy usually has in it, implicitly at least, how-to questions. Um, so I, you know, I do think much theory, if not all of it, is, is, is practice-oriented in one way or another, taking the idea of practice at its very broadest. So um, you've spoken a little bit about the difference between creative practice, research by creative practice, <laughs> research by design, and it's a bit of semantics question, but um, I wonder if you can speak to the difference between those and practice-led research and mm -hmm. why it might be important to make those distinctions in title. So, um, I mean, I, I like, there's an essay by Christopher Fraley in the 19, in, he was rector of the Royal College of Arts in London in the 1990s, um, which is called Research in Art and Design, and there he sets out definitions of research for, research into, and research through design. And I really like those definitions. So for Frailing, research for design encompasses familiar cultural, philosophical, sociological, ethnographic inquiries into design cultures and practices um, and into professional values and habits. So it's re research, um, I suppose, for design in the sense of supporting and engaging with design cultures. Then there's research into design, which is knowledge, seeks knowledge about um, things that are useful for design, so materials, digital processes, um, so knowledge of knowledge about design. And then the third one, research through design, seems the most novel of the three, and probably maybe the most interesting, which is about seeking new knowledge through design practice. Um, and I mean, I think one of the things we found in our creative practice research is, is exactly that, that um, the problem, first of all, of establishing a, a practice of your own, whatever that practice might be, um, kind of beginning it, but then also knowing how to stop. Because at some point you have to finish the PhD. So how do you then, you know, having begun a practice, how do you then know how to, I mean, it, it will probably never stop because it's your life's practice, but how do you get to a point where you can draw some conclusions to, to, to hand something <laughs> in? Yeah, exactly. But I think also one of the interesting things about research through design is that it emphasises the positionality and the agency of the author in a way that isn't traditionally the case in research. Um, you know, and it chimes with ideas from gender theory about reclaiming the authorial eye um, and the authorial voice. Uh, and I think that's really valuable. I mean, I think that there, there is often still in architectural research a fascination with third-person writing, um, as though somehow the researcher can be neutral. Mm. Um, and I, it seems to me that there is that, that there is no not taking a position. Even if you're trying not to take a position, you're still taking a position. So it seems to be much better to begin by claiming the authorial eye. Um, and then making a clear statement about our position as a research as, as a researcher in a particular project. And so one of the things that we do quite a lot in PhD by creative practice is to think about a statement of positionality and how you can declare your own practice in relation to other practices. Um, and I think that involves, it's very hard, because we've got to be honest with ourselves and, and also with 
with readers about our blinkers and our limitations, actually, to be able to do that and to make those things explicit in writing, writing a statement of positionality. Um, so I think maybe that's still more radical in research than it ought to be. Um, but the consequence of, of those sorts of ways of working, of, of writing in the first person and claiming, claiming a, actively claiming a positionality, is that it accords more value to practice. Um, and I guess I mean that in the sense of artistic practice as the process of inquiry through doing, um, which I think is similar to, but maybe not quite the same as what the way that we would define architectural practice. Um, and that way of practicing accords more value to the researcher's decision making um, and hopefully makes that more explicit. And I think that's, that's a really interesting way of working. All of that said, not all design is research, and maybe not very much of it is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I mean, I think I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but in the UK, you quite often get architects about doing research for a project, and that often means you know reading a brief and, and looking at building types and so on. Um, and again, I think that's often where the, the three tests in REF come in useful. This idea that research is a, it has to be original, significant, and rigorous. Um, you know, and quite often the research that architects do in practice is rigorous. Sometimes it's significant, but only very occasionally is it original. Um, and how, how we, you know, so um, I guess to kind of come back to your question about how it's different, um, I mean, I think it's about the kind of claiming of, claiming, active claiming of an authorial position. Um, but also about recognising when design becomes research, because it, it often isn't. So move, moving a bit outside yeah. of uh, research in academia, and I suppose yeah. uh, moving into just contemporary architectural research in general, I wonder how your work with architectural uh, research quarterly has influenced the doctoral program. Um, so, I mean, I think... There's, I mean, certainly influenced me as a supervisor <laughs> in the sense that I, you know, I've done a lot of editing work and I kind of, you know, I've spent, I spent a lot of time with other people's work and found that I actually really enjoy that. Um, but there is actually a direct link. So um, as well as design office, and that, this is another cunning way of trying to fund a PhD scholarship. So we get a stipend from Cambridge University Press for the journal which we can use to pay for editorial assistance. And rather than paying a traditional editorial assistant, what we do is to use that money to pay, pay a PhD scholarship. So we've got somebody who works with us on the journal one or two days a week, but is doing a PhD for the rest of the time. Um, and interestingly, so Ashley Mason, who was the one who, who first, our first ARQ PhD student who finished relatively recently, ended up writing on, um, paratextuality, so paratext being the sort of spaces around the text, so the margins, the front matter, the end matter, indexes, and so on. I think, you know, partly because she just spent so much of her time editing, she was kind of so familiar with all of that stuff. Um, but she put together the idea, she did a project on um, the Parallel of Life and Art exhibition, um, organised by the Independent Group in London in 1953, which included the Smithsons and Eduardo Palazzi and so on. Uh, and she found that the, um, the, the, the photographs of the exhibition 
um, actually shifted over time. So there were a couple of exhibits that disappeared and a couple of exhibits that appeared in the photographs of the exhibition. Um, and the catalogue, um, which was the only kind of captions, didn't quite accord with either set of photographs. Um, so she got really interested in, in thinking about that exhibition in terms of paratextuality and then thinking about sight in terms of paratext, so what she calls paracontext, um, using ideas of paratextuality as a way of looking at sight. So again, we didn't, you know, when, I, when Ashley took up that studentship, I sort of had no idea that ARQ would kind of become so interestingly involved in the research, but it, it did. Um, yeah, so I think there have been some really productive connections. It weaves its way in. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what does an architectural case study entail, and how do you extract truth from a case study? <laughs> That's a small question. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm too much of a post-structuralist to say that you can ever extract truth from anything. Um, I mean, I think it's important to read architecture for what it has to say about, as I've said before, the, the values of the individuals and cultures that produced it. Um, so I don't think you, there is ever any truth to be found. Um, and I suppose what, but I guess what's interesting is that in any close reading of architecture or architectural artifacts, you have to, there's a, there's a, there's a balance to be struck between evidence and interpretation. So, you know, there's no single correct reading of anything to be systematically extracted. There's no one truth. Um, and there will be at least as many readings as there, of something as there are readers, probably more so. Um, and in, over time, multiple readings infect and inform one another of the same thing. Um, so, but equally, I think it's important that interpretation doesn't overreach itself, you know, that you should, as a researcher, it's important. It's important to go beyond the straightforward accounting of the built evidence of a building or the 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 thing at, at, at stake in order to understand the values and uh, that are at work culturally. But equally, there's there's scholarly responsibility that you can't evade. That you it's important not to overinterpret evidence and to avoid concocting fictions out of opportunistic interpretations. So I think that's a question. The answer to the question is probably about to do with, or it's probably to do with, with judgment again mm -hmm. and responsibility. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, um, I, suppo I, I suppose it's, it's how do you interpret, I guess, truth, because that's a pretty loaded <laughs> term. Just a bit. Uh, yeah. So how do you interpret truth as something that you're studying in a case study like is it something that you're you're going in um with certain parameters that you're you're looking for or you just kind of read it uh and see what comes out of out of your reading on, on the case study so i think so i think there's i think there's evidence and interpretation mm -hmm. um and that the evidence has its own voice but then we interpret that evidence um and you know i mean i guess the more the deeper you get into research, often the more blurry the boundary gets between evidence and interpretation. Um, but I think, again, it's perhaps about being honest with ourselves as researchers about where those boundaries are and when, when interpretation begins and being careful to, to be responsible in the way that we interpret. 
that doesn't overreach what the evidence has to offer. I think, yeah. interestingly, Habermas, the Frankfurt School philosopher, mm. uh, Habermas, he says that truth is by consensus. So truth emerges. And therefore, it's, uh, the student may do a case study that advice a male give a response, and it comes up a print that the guy is giving things. Suddenly, everyone's in there because they all want to understand what is the truth here mm. that emerges. It's not uh, a given in that sense which I found very useful mm -hmm. to find the value of design critics. Mm -hmm. People, why do people come as guest critics? They're not in paid, I mean, or even not paid, really. Why do they come for that? The rationals, people in nature to see the truth, and they like to see a student doing something and then responding, and then the other great response, and suddenly some lovely moments happen, and one gets enlightened. Mm -hmm. So truth emerges. So uh, are, are there emerging methodologies that you feel have the most potential in architectural research today? Another small question. Um, I mean, obviously, I've, you know, I, 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 I've got interested in creative practice um, research and design-based methods. Um, and I think, you know, I think they're really interesting. And I suppose for, for me, that's where, what I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in exploring and engaging with at the moment. Um, Equally, I mean, I think the lessons of cultural studies and theory and philosophy remain incredibly important. Um, I've got quite interested in, in object-oriented ontology, um, and I've just done a chapter on Graham Harmon's uh, work in a book that's, that I think is out this week, even. Um, trying to think about, and that, that, that chapter is, is about trying to um, Think about the architectural canon as a series of uh, as a series of objects that have kind of shifting um, interactions in architects' imaginations. Um, but so I think there's something really interesting in that. Um, I mean, in my own school, um, biotechnology is becoming quite a strong um, area of activity. Thinking about bioengineering materials that can absorb CO2, that can passively adapt climate. Um, and I, I, I mean, no, I mean, a lot of that is so technological, you know, it's so kind of technological, it's way over my head. But I suppose what I'm interested in around that are the, are, are the ethics of biotechnology. Um, and, you know, I guess that taps into AI, the debates around AI about where human agency begins and ends, you know, and if you if we're designing materials that are able to grow themselves, you know, how do you what, and and that, that effectively have their own agency? Then what are the ethics of that, and how do we how do we engage our own agency of that? So that's another, I suppose, another another strand that's going on, and of course, you know, kind of climate emergency. It's, Incredibly important, I think, as architects and researchers, that we, we need to be addressing some of the you know the really urgent problems that come out of, of the, the challenges that we're all going to face in the next twenty years. Um, so we've we've spoken a bit about your work as series editor of uh, Thinkers and Architects, and obviously your work on Heidegger as well, um, which was enlightening. Um, how can architectural research into the working and living spaces of thinkers or or even makers um, shed new light on their work? I wonder if you can speak to that a little a, a little bit about how 
to what extent can we know or even verify the effect that architecture has had on their work? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, you can't, I mean, I suppose to come back to the thing about evidence and interpretation, we can't know something unless there's specific evidence the way we can interpret. You know, and as architects, we can, we can read texts as other scholars can, but we can also read buildings and places. You know, so in terms of the scholarship on particular thinkers, I think we have something as architects that we can offer there, particularly in being able to read place, read, read the places, read the physical circumstances of, of philosophy in that sense. So I think there is important research looking at the circumstances of particular thinkers. You know, and I guess it's quite common in biographies of philosophers and theorists and so on to infer biographical information that, te- that, 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 that those thinkers might have read. You know, it's often, it's often a kind of game of, oh, well, the book was in their library, so they must have read and engaged with, and then here's a whole book on that. Um, you know, and, and, and people take that seriously in, in a research context, when even when there's not much direct evidence other than a sort of sense of the milieu that that thinker was operating in. So, so why not do the same with physical? with thinking about the physical circumstances of, of philosophers or thinkers' thought. Um, I don't think it's any different inferring connections out of that than it would be inferring bibliographical connections. Um, I mean, I suppose I did, I, I did, I guess your question comes from my book on Heidegger's hut. Um, and I, I did wonder after I'd done that whether my next book would be on a book on thinkers' places more broadly. So I went to visit Bachelard's house, about 50 miles south of Paris, which has cellar half an attic, as you might imagine. Um, and I found the address for Foucault's flat in Paris. Um, but I, I don't know, it started feeling a bit claustrophobic somehow. And I, I, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't feel like I, I wanted to keep going with that. And I, so, so it's something I think I will, I will come back to at some point in terms of philosophers' places. You know, maybe, I, I still don't have the urge to do it yet. <laughs> Maybe it'll be my last book. I don't know. If Heidegger's hut was the first one, maybe that would be the last one. Wittgenstein had made a hut for himself. He did, although he didn't spend very long there. He only spent, I think it was either one or two summers there. And in fact, Wittgenstein was a hospital porter in Newcastle for a year. Um, So he worked in the building that's just across from from where I I work. And so one of the things that I I would like to try and track down at some point is where is how you know where Wittgenstein was in the Royal Victoria Infirmary in Newcastle and yeah. um, he also had his famously empty white office in Cambridge um, and I've been trying to track the photograph of that down to see if there's anything you know see if it exists in anything other than mythology um, and, you know maybe there are actually there are this is uh, you know one of the I suppose one of the reasons that, that I stopped working on that book the, my unwritten book about thinkers places um, was that there's not often that much evidence but you know more recently having been engaging in the creative practice work and thinking about Ray's project about how you kind of build beyond you, you might spec- introduce kind of fictitious and design speculations beyond the edge of the evidence you know maybe that's the way to do that book in due course I don't know I don't know mm-hmm. give me 20 years <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So when and why should architectural research include or omit something? That's a great question. Um, can I ask where it came from? Yeah, sure. So it's from uh, Drawing in Good Faith as well. Okay. I think uh, you bring up uh, like curating photographs. They omit the sort of lived-in spaces. Of mm -hmm. oh, okay. I mean, it's a it's a big question. I mean, I suppose in terms of when, why, when and why architectural research should include or omit something. I guess it's a question, a question again about the judgment of the researcher. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I guess in in history and theory and criticism, it relies on responsible interpretation. So I suppose it's up to our judgment as researchers about what we include and what we exclude. And I guess you know, it's one of the reasons I'm really interested in cultural studies because you know, it encourages us, cautions us to look out for the lacunae and to look for the gaps in what we're studying. You know, who, who's, who is included and who is excluded? What's at stake? Why, when, how and for whom? Um, you know, and it, I guess in particular cultural, cultural studies reminds us to pay attention to power and gender and ethnicity and class, kind of rearrange those four in whichever order you prefer. Um, and to follow the power relations when we're studying something, you know, in architectural projects, you know, who, who and what is being privileged and why, um, and what, what are the what are the power relations at work? So I think it's a really good question because you know I think as researchers, it's 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 incumbent upon us to look for the omissions, mm. and particularly who is omitted, and why and for what reasons. So it's a you know, great question. Uh, so is there significance in utilizing academic design studios as a research mechanism by professors or by the profession? Um, so I wonder if there might be a bit of, bit of cultural difference going on here. So what by academic design studios, what do you mean? Because I think that might be slightly different to what I would mean from a British so, context. Yeah, so uh, that, that came from drawing so you shouldn't read what I've written. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Don't pay any attention to that. <laughs> but you were using uh, your students' work to sort of evaluate and sort of oh, okay. yeah, yeah. sort of drawing everyday mm -hmm. uses and you know, that sort of thing. So that was a project where um, students um, were making drawings of places that they've inhabited. Mm -hmm. I guess yeah. you've seen so so CAD drawings that record in huge in, in intricate detail um, all the physical stuff of inhabitation. So um, um, Rob Stevens in particular drew his student house. Mm -hmm. So it's a Victorian terraced house where each of the rooms had become a bedroom. And so he made these drawings, which was down to kind of drawing every pen on the table and every pair of pants on the floor and you know, in, in, uh, drawn in CAD in, in, in huge amount of detail. And you know, which for me raised the question of why why we list that out in our mm -hmm. Cartesian conventional Cartesian representations of architecture. And I think the fact that he drew them in CAD was really important as well, because it somehow and in plan, because it somehow gave them the authority that you would accord, you know, a, a plan drawing that you make to build a building. Um, so I think there are. I mean, I think it's in. And we do, something we do in our school quite a lot to um, engage 
um, design studios, undergraduate and master's level with the research that people are doing and that academics are doing. Uh, and you know, in, in, in the UK, traditionally, it's been called um, research-led teaching. But we've, we've actually sort of started thinking about flipping that round and talking about teaching-led research. Mm. So, you know, how, and I guess all of us who teach studio know that, but often really interesting questions come out of teaching, things that you've been doing with students. I mean, so that paper came out of Rob's drawings and trying to think through, well, what are the status of these things that he's produced? Um, uh, and, and likewise, you know, I think teaching gives us all kinds of interesting questions and, and ways into problems that 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 um, lead to re lead into research. So I think you know that this thing about research-led teaching is often you know is often well, it's not a I was going to say it's a misnomer. It's not, but I think the two work together. You know that we as researchers have something to offer students in our teaching through engaging them with the work that we're doing at the moment but they also have as much to offer us mm -hmm. through their engagement with that work and the way they extend and and and, and, and take it to new places that we wouldn't have thought of do you, do you see it seeping in or coming back from practice or sort of outside of the academic realm i mean i think that's also right yeah. i mean so i i practice yeah, i try yeah, to yeah. try to practice as much i mean I, i've spent the last Three and a half years at head of school as, as bureaucrat, so I, I haven't practiced quite as much as I did previously. Um, but I, there are definitely, I've always found connections between my practice and my research. Um, and often the most interesting ones are the coincidental ones. Mm. So when I was writing on Heidegger's Hut, um, I had a commission to design a house in Mid Wales, and Heidegger's Hut was on this south facing slope, building tucked into a slope, you know, building is sort of tucked into the slope. In order to get to kind of shelter into the into the hillside and to gain as much um, heat as possible from sunlight, you know, it was built without connections to main services. And the, the site that my oh, in the in the Black Mountains of southern Germany, my, this client arrived with this amazing site on a south-facing slope in the Black Forest. Sorry, Black Black Forest in southern Germany, in the Black Mountains in, in South Wales. It was just this is you know this is amazing. How has this connection come about? And I did a book on um, Leslie Martin's plan to demolish and rebuild Whitehall in London, London's gov government district, um, which was a plan that was presented to Harold Wilson's Labour government. And at the same time, we worked on a, um, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of things going on in it around megastructural thinking um, in that project. But we also were approached to do some work on a building on our university campus was finished in the same year as the Whitehall plan this was at the same time another kind of mega structure opened by Harold Wilson two days after the Whitehall report landed on his desk the Prime Minister at the time so I don't know I've always felt I mean they're sort of circumstantial connections but out of those circumstantial connections other things flow and I you know I, I there's a whole thing I've got another book I want to write at some point about coincidences because I think you know, actually, coincidences are incredibly important in research, mm -hmm. and we don't pay them enough attention. You know, Kieran's project on suspended ceilings in the Armstrong building, the, the main manufacturer of suspended ceilings is Armstrong. You know, it's kind of inevitable that he ended up working on that. And, and yeah, various of my students have their own coincidences. Right, yeah. But there's, there's, a, there's a project there. Sorry, uh, and next question is also coming up from. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so uh, 
basically reading a critical theory, any source mm -hmm. of influential truth is considered a political act. So is or could architectural research present be a political act, as well as the categories of truth reflected in research? Okay, so yeah, that, 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 that's another one that made me think. <laughs> Um, so I'm glad you sent these in advance, because, um, but I mean, ultimately, I think everything is political. So everything implicates, as cultural studies has taught us, everything implicates power, gender, ethnicity, and class in some way or another, and that involves the capital P politics of elections and newspapers and TV shows, but also what you might call the micro politics of, I don't know, gendered conversation or who does the housework or exclusionary terminologies. Um, yeah, so I think ev I, everything is political, and so therefore I think architect yes, architectural research is political. Um, although I suppose I, to come back to the point on re on positionality, um, I think research is at its best when researchers are explicit about their position um, and the limit lim limits and the benefits of that position. So um, you know we we inevitably bring our politics and our position to bear on our research and I think that's fine but we and, and is it and can be important and powerful but we also need to, to be absolutely rigorous about declaring that to ourselves as much as to our readers um, and trying to um, be as as candid as we can in our the way in the way that we work with our material does that make sense mm -hmm. So I guess considering um, you know the climate in which we live, where post-truth has affected our global politics, <laughs> this is an intense one. But, uh, I'm very timely. Yes. Yeah. Um, I guess we were wondering, you know, how to negotiate uh, the space or the gap, perhaps growing between truth and fact, interpretation and opinion, and whether there is another layer of responsibility that's really inherent in our own work ethics. So what does architecture have to contribute? Um, yes, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. That, um, that I mean, I think, you know, an architectural training um, inculcates us in, a, in us ethical ways of working. You know, that we, we always bring things to design projects beyond what the client asks us to do. You know, often working for a developer, they, you know, may not be paying that much attention to what the users of buildings might want those buildings to do and as, as much attention to the profit margin you know and we, and we as architects then inevitably bring our own ethics and values to bear on problems like that and and think you know tend to think incredibly hard in ways that we're not asked to do about the inhabitants of buildings and how they, they might use them and so on as an example i guess i mean i suppose in in terms of questions about truth and fact um, you know I mean I think it's I mean you know, storytelling and narrative are incredibly important um, I mean yes uh, you know that I think it's important to always recognize the bound recognize where evidence and interpretation meet and to be clear about how that operates but equally, um, I, th I think it's important to remember the power of narrative 
and you know Hayden White, who writes about meta history, talks about the story and history. Um, and you know, I think we 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 as researchers have to be good storytellers, and stories have a kind of animatory force. Um, and I think that you know that, that, that it's, it's important to remember that. And I suppose the, the point is responsible interpretation done on the basis of evidence in good faith, but also recognising at the same time the power of our storytelling for ourselves and for others. I don't know, is that okay? Yes, please, thank you. Maybe, I'm just wondering, uh, the, the problem with storytelling narratives is that's uh, the best narrative in, even though it may not be based on the truth. If you have two countries fighting each other out, uh, the country the better narrative, the world believes that. But this country who can't get the act together about telling the story loses out, although truthfully, they are the ones who are the victims and they are the ones who are the aggressors. So therefore, one wonders, it's a very strange question, the post-truth, yeah. right? But yeah. if you don't, probably if you don't accept the fact there's something like post-truth, maybe you accept it. I sort of, I don't know, I sort of feel like, maybe, maybe I guess my, my concern behind it is this idea of how closely you need to follow your story or the story that you're participating in to construct it, you know, and putting into place. Um, so, you know, because of this notion that we have so many different specialties, so many different people working together, you know, and in the end there will be certain projects where you're participating and are you really, you know, doing everything that you need to do to act ethically in the construction, mm -hmm. right? And, and I, I, that is nice because then that is really very traditional. Mm -hmm. We are at, at this moment, mm -hmm. uh, architects, whenever we're doing something, we are already post-truth. And if you really dig into it, you find that we are masking many things that need to be. Uh, for example, uh, uh, I designed this uh, war memorial, and it was a it was a time-bound project, so it was designed. I believe it was designed well, they lasted. So in that urgency to the end, they said they liked our plaque. They see my name as an architect, and I realized it would not have been possible. The whole team of the contractors and the glassmakers, everyone. So I said, look, the only thing that can happen is get, get the whole team into it. It's okay, but they only give me look like a two-day affair. Yeah. So I began to find out, okay, so the contractor did that. Who were the workers? Where does it st stop? The glassmaker turned out to be a contractor, not the guy themselves. So who does that? So in the two days, the whole thing just went completely out of control. And as a result, uh, I could not finish it. And I said, the only honest thing to be not to have a plaque. There's no more plaque. Because then I realized the way you should do it, really, every actual project should be like the like the filmmakers do it. At the end, you get the credits. <laughs> Everyone who touched it is there. That was truly the case yeah, of yeah. every architectural project. This is a, um, it's the whole profession of people involved in making it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, and I think architectural historians don't pay enough attention to that. Um, and I, you know, it's another another one of my un, as yet unwritten books. Um, around oral histories, so um, in thinking about oral histories of projects, where you, you you might talk to the architect and engineer, and but then contractors, builders, the people who actually constructed the building, but then what about the people who inhabit the building and look after it? What about the cleaners? You know, and actually, um, the stories of 
the stories of the cleaners of famous buildings would be absolutely fascinating because they'd have a knowledge, that, you know, they have a deep knowledge of the building, probably way beyond the people who designed it, and yet we don't accord that any value, you know, and including the forgotten spaces. Yeah, the exactly. Um, I mean, I suppose the thing about about post the post truth and so on. I mean, I guess as researchers, we all know. And we kind of check ourselves when we're working about about our work. I mean, there are a number of times when I've, I've sort of been writing away and I've come up with this, this amazing idea about, oh, you know, you can interpret this in this way. That, I could interpret this in this way and I can spin this story out. Of, and, you know, actually think, well, yeah, but does the evidence actually support that? You know, no, it doesn't, does it? Um, it's a great idea, but it's not, you know, I can't justify that. As a researcher, you know, I mean, my it, it feels like overinterpretation of the evidence. Trying to find what is the real story. Yeah, so I think we all have our own sure. judgment and our own ethics about sure. about recognizing that that point and when. What is the story? Yeah, yeah, when we're saying something that we think we is reliable based on our, you know inter our interpretation is reliable based on the evidence, and when it becomes unreliable. And I suppose that's one of the other interesting things about creative practice research is that when you start, you get in, you kind of get beyond the evidence into fiction. That then gives you permission to 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 do unreliable interpretation. But again, then you can acknowledge it as such. You know, it's, you then make that clear to your reader, and that is also then a responsible thing to do as a researcher. It's really interesting. So how do you define a skillful designer? What makes them skillful? Another good question. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I started off by talking a bit about you know, Heidegger and the problems of authenticity, and I guess I struggle a bit with with good, try, you know, with good or bad, you know, uh, the words I try to encourage students never to use. Um, don't you know? Don't say something's good or bad. Try and explain it. Um, and I suppose trying to identify what skillful is and what skillful isn't is a bit similar to that. Um, but you know, obviously, we do have to make judgments in in architectural culture about what's valuable and, and what isn't, and what's skillful and what isn't. And you know, we have to assess design competitions and mark student work and, and all of those sorts of things. And you know, I think you said mentioned it earlier. I think it, it comes down to peer review. Um, and I went to a conference years ago at Harvard um, on expertise, and there was a fantastic talk from a lawyer called Sheila Jasanoff, who had a, this thing that she called the game plan of expertise. So um, one of the things that lawyers do when they interview expert witnesses is to try and make their expert witness seem more expert and make the opposition's um, uh, expert witness Seem um, seem more unreliable, and so there was this sort of grid she had. I see if I can remember before he had expert had um, experience on one axis and evidence on the other, um, and so if you want to to make your own expert witness, you want to you want them to succeed. They have you know ideally they would have both experience and evidence, and you want to push the other. Um, the opposition's expert witness into the other corner, which she labelled fraud, bias, and error. Um, but the the um, 
effectively, the, you know, the, there's there's a sort of scale of experience from least experience to most experience, and a scale of evidence that go went up to, I suppose, it's sort of quantifiable error rates and so on. So in medicine, you can you can, in theory, you can quantify how how likely you are to make a mistake. So we don't have quantifiable we don't have quantifiable error rates, but we do have experience. And I think often the way that we judge what good architecture is is by consensus among experienced experts. Um, you know, so if you think about marking design work for students, you know, and certainly in our school, each crit panel would have two or three people on who would all mark. And then the review, the, at the end of the day, the marks are all moderated by the, all the crit panels, which might be 14 people together who go around and look at all the work. And then at the end of the year, there are portfolio reviews where you go through the, the marks again. So each student's mark on a project has probably been looked at by 25 people. And you know, when students accuse us of, you know, you just don't like me, so you've given me a bad mark. Well, actually, yes, it's very, there are some things in architecture which, which are inherently right, like generally a floor ought to be fairly stable and a you know, roof ought to be watertight for the most part. But once you get beyond that, you get you know you get into the the realm of judgment, and the way that we are able to rule on what is good judgment and what isn't is through consensus and peer review. Um, so I suppose in terms of how you define a skillful designer, I think it would be you know I would want the consensus of this room to help make that decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you wrote draw. I'm, I'm just like I have all these questions. Like I'm gonna <laughs> shoot them all in a row. So. Um, you wrote in drawing in good faith that measured or su measured subjected drawing can be applied to interiors. Can this idea translate to exteriors? So that was the yeah that was the paper that I talked about before with the, with the you know the, these very detailed drawings of um, of the inhabitation of spaces, and I, I was interested in how. Um, those drawings um, reflect the, the, the inhabitant, reflect the subject. Um, so, um, I mean, and they were based on, I mean, it wasn't my student's idea or my idea. I don't know if you've seen Sarah Wigglesworth's dining table drawings. Sorry? Sarah Wigglesworth's dining table drawings. Yeah. So these beautiful, yeah, these kind of beautiful drawings of, um, of, of of the table of a, in, in a meal, you know, from the kind of pristinely set out through people happening, you know, the, the dinner happening through to um, the kind of chaos of the dining table at the end of the meal. Um, and I suppose it's a really good question about whether that technique that, that, that you could use to record the detail of the inhabitation of interiors would work outside. You know, and particularly in public space, there tends to be less stuff, you know, um, less physical traces of inhabitation. Most of what's there is arranged by designers or planners or, or whatever. Um, and I suppose that the, maybe the answer to the question is, in so Sarah's, Sarah Wigglesworth's table drawing, the, the middle drawing where, where the, the meal is happening, the figures are dotted on. Um, and each one is dotted in three or four places to sort of suggest a bit of movement of that person sat at the table. And I wonder whether, if you're thinking about recording people's inhabitation of space over time, you do, in plan, you do that through a series of figures that are sort of dotted and overlaid and so on. Mm -hmm. And so there, there might be a lesson in Sarah's drawing for how to do that. But 
Um, how can an architect design a home using subjective measure drawing as a conceptual framework or a starting point? Are there benefits to including subjective drawing uh, information? Does it affect design intent and legibility? So the, those drawings that in that essay um, were post-factum drawings, so they were made as survey and analytical drawings, not as design drawings. And I guess the question you're asking is, can that, can you, could you use that as a design tool? Um, and I don't, I don't know if it can directly. I mean, I think as architects, when we design, we project ourselves into the spaces and the places that we're designing, but we can't anticipate how they're going to be used. Um, although you know, although we should try to anticipate that. I mean, we're never going to be able to to um, to work out what all the all the uses of the room are going to be. Um, so I, I don't know whether that technique would work as a as a design technique. Um, I mean, it, it might be a bit of an aside, but the um, uh, one of the things that always sticks in my mind about the, the, the sort of rhetoric around flexibility, or we we should design spaces that are flexible, which tends to mean we should design spaces that are incredibly generic, because the, you know the they'll be good for every use but actually not particularly good for any use mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so you know and if you think about uh, uh, the Piano and Rogers Pompidou Centre in Paris designed with these huge floor plates um, actually after about 10 years the main exhibition floor got fitted out with a with a with a semi-permanent set of rooms because the, ga the, the curators just found it too difficult to keep refitting the galleries every time differently for exhibitions. They just wanted a series of rooms. Mm. They wanted something more specific. The flexibility was too much. Um, and I'm kind of very very interested in, in Victorian terraced houses in the UK, um, which are very, a very kind of specific um, pattern of dwelling. Um, but each room tends to have in it a, a chimney piece, a fireplace, um, and then an alcove either side of that. And interesting, it, it, and that, that the, the fireplace makes the room harder to inhabit in some ways because you can't just do anything in it. But on the other hand, what it means is that those um, alcoves tend to attract um, people, tend to use them and inhabit them. Uh, you know, so it might be full, full of bookshelves and books like they are in their house, or they might have somebody's television inside of the place, or they might have ch children's toys or whatever. And I think there is something about mindless flexibility and the need for some specificity when we design, mm -hmm. even if we're designing spaces that people want to use flexibly. Um, so, I mean, it's a bit of a, a kind of drift away from the question, but I suppose my, yeah, my the, the, the point there is that whilst we can't anticipate how people are going to inhabit spaces, I think we can provide incentives for inhabitation. I mean, it's something that Aldo van Eyck and Herman Hertzberg are really strong on, you know, that idea of how you, how you, you provide spaces which anticipate use but don't prescribe that use. Not sure if this is a uh, naive uh, question, but uh, in classical uh, 2D animation, and I don't think it's specific to 2D animation, but in, in animation, there seems to be a subjectivity and expressiveness in spaces. Uh, whether built or natural. Do you think that narrative 
uh, then is a powerful tool to express and open a door for subjectivity in architectural drawings and representations such as renderings, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, I agree. I mean, narrative and, and storytelling is incredibly important to what we do as architects. Um, I mean, I think I mentioned Yasser's graphic novel back at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, which was about the kind of power plays that happen in site meetings with different consultants and, and, and contractors and so on. And you realise that other people in the construction industry have quantitative metrics in a way that we don't. You know, we, so, you know, quantity surveyor can tell you that your that the building will be 23% more expensive if you do this or you know m and &E engineer can tell you that that system is 21% more more efficient but we can't tell somebody that a building you know that the building will be 32% more delightful um, <laughs> if if they invest money in this so what you know whilst other consultants can persuade through um, through quantitative metrics, we have storytelling. How do we persuade people to invest in our designs? Well, by telling really good stories about them. Um, and, uh, you know, narrating, I suppose that, so there's something about storytelling in practice to get buildings built, but also I suppose a role for storytelling in how we as designers narrate a sequence of evocative and atmospheric and meaningful places in buildings and around them. Um, I mean, obviously Marco Frescari was here, who's one of the great architectural storytellers, so he could answer that question much better than I could. But um, yeah, I do, I do think narrative is incredibly important to what we do. I guess that comes back to the, the post-truth post mm -hmm. question that we were talking about earlier as well. Do you see hardline orthographic drawings as a platonic ideal? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I mean, it's connections often made. Um, whether that, like, I suppose, in reference to yeah. the uh, subjective drawing, like the line drawing, yeah. versus a kind of um, more, uh, I don't know, like table straight, all the chairs are in place. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think orthogonal drawings, uh, or, or, sorry, hardline orthographic drawings, and orthogonality in orthographic drawings tends to have a certain kind of authority, you know, that, that um, I mean, I've noticed in my own practice that um, I use hand, I draw, I, I prefer drawing by hand when I can, but I do draw in, I do draw in, in, in vector works as well. And uh, if, if certain drawings have different effects for certain people, so uh, draw, drawings made in vector works look more resolved somehow, and people are less likely to question them if you make a drawing in CAD. And, and I've even had a planning submission returned in the UK, um, effectively because the drawings were made by hand and the planner thought that they should have been drawn on a computer and that clearly I didn't know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> whereas actually, if you, you know, if, if you take CAD drawings into a, um, into a consultation, people will feel they can say less about them because it looks more resolved. You make the same plan with a wobbly freehand line and people feel that they can get stuck in in a very different way. So I think maybe it's a question about authority somehow and mm. the hard line conveys a certain kind of authority. I guess, yeah, it depends on who's reading the drawing mm -hmm. uh, as well. Somebody who may appreciate uh, 
uh, the, the hand drawing would tend to be that more as authoritative because of the skill in drawing it versus a generic uh, computer-generated drawing with really nice uh, uh, line weights. Seems to have more authority for <laughs> some people. Um, you mentioned that design is a control mechanism guiding the user's life. What would a non-controlling design process look like? <laughs> um, so, I mean, okay, the one of those moments when Heidegger popped into my head and I said, I'm you know, trying not to think about it much anymore. Um, that the you know, building dwelling thinking talks about dwelling, configuring, building. So the ways that the rites and rituals of everyday life um, become deeply understood and translated into the design of buildings. But likewise, a building configures how it is used in, by, the, by the people who inhabit it. So buildings, once constructed, determine how they're, or set out how, how they're inhabited. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's plenty of literature on co-design and participation um, and ways of involving people in, in, in the design process through to self-build. Um, and uh, Shelley Arnstein talks about the ladder of participation, which is the different mo methods for um, encouraging uh, participation and co-production. Um, I mean, as a bit of an aside, our, another one of our creative practice PhDs at Newcastle um, is based on Ralph Erskine's work in Biker. I don't know if you know the, you've come across the Biker estate that was designed, so the architects moved. So it's kind of comprehensive redevelopment of, of an area of Newcastle in the, um, in the 1970s. And the architects moved into a pub on the site and they worked on the site um, and they worked with the, with the people um, uh, whose houses were being demolished and then being, who were being provided new houses. Um, and so although there had to be inevitably, because of the, the kind of way the project was funded, there had to be sort of standard housing types, they were then able to work with people to adapt their own houses and to design the public space in different ways and so on. So uh, James Longfield, his PhD, was, rent, was renting, living in a house in Biker, had been designed in this way, um, and got really interested in um, what he called the amateur practices of the citizen designer. So um, how, uh, you know, what it means to, to live in a place and work in a place and to be working with communities. So he did a whole series of projects that were about um, reanimating dilapidated spaces on the estate um, and, and doing it in a kind of insurgent way without funding, but working with people to make interventions in, in in, in places and, and, and to try and um, uh, engage with with the community through design, but also engage the community in design. Um, so, you know, I think there are all kinds of interesting ways of, of engaging, uh, engaging in inhabitants in spaces through to co-producing work with the, with the people who you inhabit and use it. What was that? What was the specific example that you just gave? Uh, so the, the, the estate is uh, Biker in Newcastle, B-Y-K-E-R, uh, designed by Ralph Erskine, who was a member of Team 10. Um, yeah, I think it's also by Erskine's Wall, no? Yes, that's right. Erskine's the, Wall project. The Biker Wall is the most biker famous wall, yeah. part of it, which mm -hmm. is um, uh, 
a, a, a long sinuous slab block that was part, that was designed partly to insulate the estate from the uh, a motorway behind it so it was designed with all the all the inhabitable rooms on the south side and kitchens and bathrooms on the motorway side as a kind of um, acoustic break for the rest of the estate but also as a sort of solar device um, although I mean that's the most famous thing but actually that's only about was only about only about 10 or 20 percent of the houses that were built or the dwellings that were built in Bikin were in the wall the rest is a sort of low-rise estate below it um, so but everyone knows the wall because it's the most eye-catching image I'm thinking of Hazan party in Egypt <laughs> 1930s he had to resettle the whole villages one village and design the whole village anew mm. he interviewed everyone found out all the clan relationships family relationships and ends up designing each house for each family, making sure that the whole clan is together so that you have their own blind alleys. It's incredible. The guy designs the whole thing, he says, everyone's individual, you can't have a type A, type B, type C. It's all different. It's the same spirit, you know? 1930s? That's 1930s, yeah. 30, 40. Very, yeah, very hard to do with certain funding models in the West. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So it was very difficult to I mean, that, you know, it was doomed. So much better. And the two yeah. is very much faster these days. Do so. Um, moving on to the next topic, which is the sedimentation of memory. I have a background in conservation and sustainability and a lot of heritage studies, so I found this paper very interesting. So, um, and the approach to incorporating memory into architecture is really different here. So before writing your paper on the sedimentation of memory, how did you incorporate memory into your work, both practice and in research? And had that changed after writing this piece? Another really good question, one I had to think about. Um, so, I mean, I think there's, I mean, I'm really interested in the debates about history and memory. Um, and that, you know, the idea that uh, in memory studies that um, the individual cultural perception of the past is more significant and more decisive in the present than, than facts. Um, that memory can be more powerful than history. Um, and often that someone's memory is worth more to them than the evidence. Yes. You know, you, you find that, I mean, I found this in interviewing people for, you know, architects for, for my research, you know, for stuff they were doing 30, 40, 50 years ago, who would say, well, I don't remember it that way, you know, and actually their, mem their memory of it is much more significant to them than, than what the archive might say. Um, and they get terribly annoyed when you, you know, you, you, you prefer the archive to their memory. <laughs> um, but, so, but also, I mean, there's, there's a distinction in memory studies, I guess, between individual memories on the one hand, and ideas of collective and cultural memory, which are much more fraught um, you know, and I do worry when buildings get held up as talismans of, of cultural and, and national identity because of all of the exclusionary things that come with that. And I think architects tend to find it a lot less fraught to deal in individual memories than, than any kind of idea of collective memory. You know, and, and Georges Perrac, Bachelard, Proust, and his Madeleine. Um, you know, I suppose that realm of poetic evocation of individual memory is where much of the literature on architecture and memory tends to sit. Um, 
Yeah, an, an idea of memory born through through time and long inhabitation. Um, I mean, I suppose personally, I, I worked in conservation practice um, before I was an architect, and uh, before I was an academic, when I was an architect, still am an architect. <laughs> <laughs> um, I forget that sometimes. Uh, but the, uh, uh, and I, I mean, that was absolutely fascinating. And I think the thing I enjoyed the most was in conservation practice was working with each building and trying to, you know, particularly survey work actually and understanding the ideas and the logics involved in design and, you know, kind of working out the, the, the geometries that were at work on the architect's drawing board when they were thinking. Um, so I suppose my approach to, to memory and architecture comes through a kind of fairly conventional training in conservation practice. Um, which comes out of you know, William Morris and the Spad Manifesto, and you know, new work should be of its time, um, and the, the, the kind of approach where it's assumed that new work should be legible in relation to the old visually, that you should always articulate new fabric uh, in relation to the old, you know, kind of scar colour scarper's world, even though, of course, scarper constructed fictions. You know that what what would appear to be a series of historical layers often actually are constructions in the present that are about telling a fictional story about the history of the building. Um, but yes, I guess that's that's where my my interpretation of uh, my, my previous interpretation of memory and architecture have come from. And I suppose engaging with the Chapel of Reconciliation in Berlin and that essay about sedimentation of memory made me realise that that set of approaches about making new work legible in relation to the old has become a, a kind of a, 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 tr a series of tropes visually mm -hmm. um, and that, that maybe there, there, there could be other ways of working with historic fabric uh, without always defaulting to that way of, way of practicing. That's why I really liked that paper <laughs> because it was a very different look at and uh, investigation existing fabric into something new because there's um like you said the defaults of um museumification and like preservation movement and then like the high contrast existing to the new edition so oftentimes it's a very modernist i'm thinking of a very specific project in my city right now where there's a box being added to a lovely historical uh building i won't get into that <laughs> That's why I really liked that piece. Um, how does one identify and incorporate sediments into design? Have you practiced this? Uh, short answer to have I practiced it is no. <laughs> Love to have the opportunity, you know. To, um, but I think, I mean, it's, uh, it was obviously very specific. So I don't know if you all saw that essay, but there's a, it's about the Chapel of Reconciliation in Berlin, which is constructed, um, or the, the, the sanctuary is constructed from round earth walls. And the church that had been on the site previously was detonated um, by the East German border guards because it sat between the two leaves of the Berlin Wall. Um, and the aggregate from the site was mixed into the mud in the, in the construction of the round earth wall. So you get these little tiny fragments of tile and brick and 
that are, that are kind of reconstituted into the, the thickness of the round earth walls. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose what I was trying to do there was to think about other ways that, that you could practice um, in terms of new work in relation to old, that, that, that as you say, isn't the, the kind of box stuck on the side or the, um, uh, the, the, the always trying to make everything legible all the time, um, and that, that perhaps there might be more ambiguous, ambiguous ways of working with historic fabric that could be more interesting. Quite what those are, I don't know, but maybe you can tell me when you've, you've worked it through in your PhD. <laughs> I guess um, on that question, it's not written here, mm -hmm. so I'm sorry to interrupt you. But um, so the sedimentary approach there is very specific to a ruin um, and the use of rammed earth. So my next question was, how do you incorporate sedimentary in or how how is this approach affected by scale? And I'm wondering if it has it's more intrinsically related maybe to the material, rather and like what the fragment is. Is that yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think something—I mean, something that I hadn't thought about when I was writing it—but I guess it works there because the fragments are, are that size; yeah. they're just big enough to recognise that it was the fragment of something. You know, so pieces of tile, you get a line, or yeah. you know, it's just enough to recognise that. Oh, that was a piece of piece of tile work, or that was a piece of terracotta, or that was a piece of—you know—or that's just a bit of rock. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you know, it, were they bigger? it would seem more compositional, more deliberate, and would feel different. And were they smaller, you wouldn't recognize them. So I think it probably, yeah, you're absolutely right, it works because they're probably no bigger than three centimeters by three centimeters. Um, and I mean, you do, you know, there, there are architects who've worked with historic fabric by you know, reusing materials, but recomposing them in different ways. And often that can look very artful. I mean, interestingly so, but I suppose with the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of archaeological sensation about that wall at the Chapel of Reconciliation um, and that it encourages you to, to kind of pay attention to it and to imagine what the fragments were and, and the stories of the place in a way that perhaps if it were a more artful composition of whole tiles, you'd think, oh, that, that, that looks very engaging. But it wouldn't draw you into thinking about it in the way that the, those those rammed earth walls do. And then, lastly, so you've written about the ways in which memory can be incorporated into architecture. Um, does memory factor into your teachings of design and the design process? Uh, probably not as much as it should. But I mean, I think I think memory should be incorporated in design, and always inevitably is. Um, so, I mean, I guess as designers, when we design, we work out of our individual and our cultural experiences um, and the ideas and the images that, for better or worse, emerge from our pasts, you know, from our own memories. Um, and so our responses as designers to sites and to programmes and to places and to ideas are a kind of synthesis of the things that we've thought and experienced in relation to the place and the brief and so on. And sometimes you know, I guess our responses to our memories can be deliberate, but I think more often it's much more unconscious. You know, some of the, some of the architects, I guess, you know, will write long stories about how something emerged out of their past and out of a biography. And 
I suspect that's not often terribly, it's not often that interesting. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I suppose the, the ways that memory works through us as designers unconsciously, I find much more interesting um, or less deliberately. Um, and so, you know, uh, I don't think, I suspect as teachers we can't prescribe how students should use memory in their design work, but, you know, our memories, be they things that we think through intellectually or, or kind of bodily memories, I suppose, um, are implicated in everything that we do, in every stroke of the pen and every click of the mouse. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think memory does factor and should, but perhaps we can't prescribe how. In, in conclusion, <laughs> um, one more sip of coffee. Yes. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask if you believe that the methodology demonstrated in creating architecture and culture has been accepted by the research community at large, um, or if you uh, are still compelled to advocate for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that idea of um, the close reading of buildings for their insights into the values of the cultures and people that have made them mm -hmm. is is really important. And I mean, I, I got interested in it, I suppose, again, to go back to this question of what we as architects can offer to the intellectual commonwealth. You know, one of the things that we can do that other scholars can't is the, cl is, is the close reading of buildings. Um, and so, um, I mean, I think that idea is perhaps still more radical than it should be. Um, I mean, uh, reading architecture and culture hasn't had a huge circulation, I have to say. Um, but I, I, my, I did a, a, asked by Oxford University Press to do a very short introduction to modern architecture as part of that series of books that they do. Um, and that also tried to demonstrate those methods. Um, and that might be a book that gets a bigger audience, I don't know, it's cheaper. Um, so, so therefore much more accessible um, but I mean I, I, I guess so that's been one of the strands of work in my own academic practice I mean I guess more recently I've been thinking a lot more in terms of research about creative practice methods so our book that we're hoping to put together on that is kind of sort of parallel to reading architecture and culture 10 years on um, about um, Another, another, it's an, another mode of doing architectural research um, that's distinct from, although some, I suppose you could draw connections with the idea of the close reading of buildings of cultural insights. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I suppose it's, yeah, it's another, another, way of, another way of doing architectural research, but both of them are about what architects can offer the intellectual commonwealth. You know, what have we got to offer to academia? Thank well, you thank so you. much for, yes, for taking on the entire agenda. <laughs> yes, and, uh, especially for being with us. Yeah. yeah, no, it's great. I mean, I really appreciate the invitation. And, and, you know, I think there are some great questions there. Really made me think. Um, and it's quite painful somehow to go back to things I've written before. God, oh, did I say that? Did I mean that? <laughs> and, and to, you know, to kind of help me disagree with myself a bit. Uh, but no, there's some great questions. So thank you so much for the time and effort that you put into it. Yeah, it's been great fun. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.